You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. Right, Prashant, it's good to be back with you. I know we've uh, taken a little bit of a hiatus from the podcast recently, but obviously I think we have um, big historic news to talk about in the Asia-Pacific region, and that is the April 27th summit between North and South Korea, the third inter-Korean summit. Uh, President Moon Jae-in of South Korea met... North Korean leader Kim Jong-un at the demilitarized zone in the village of Panmunjom, where uh, the inter-Korean armistice, uh, or not the inter-Korean armistice, but the armistice to end the Korean War was signed. Um, And let's take a step back. I mean, in a way, you know, this was almost unimaginable um, just a few months ago. Uh, Let's say, you know, five months ago, right after North Korea had tested its most powerful missile, the Hwasong-15 intercontinental range ballistic missile, the idea that by April, uh, not only, you know, we'll have seen this inter-Korean summit take place, but also that Kim Jong-un would have met with Xi Jinping, would have met with um, President Moon's advisors, and would be on the way to meeting President Trump. I mean, really, things have pivoted pretty quickly on the Korean peninsula from brinkmanship last year when uh, Trump was threatening fire and fury and Kim Jong-un uh, was threatening to bracket Guam with ballistic missiles to full-on diplomacy. I mean, uh, we have a declaration that came out of that meeting between um, Moon and Kim, the Panmunjom Declaration. It's a fairly ambitious document, um, mostly full of vision and light on specifics, as was to be expected. Uh, but we can, you know, talk a bit about the details there. Um, but you know, let me let me ask you first. You know, I mean, what is your overall um, impression of this summit? I mean, it is it is quite remarkable the way we got here, isn't it? No, absolutely. I, I think the way you framed it um, in terms of the broader perspective is exactly right. I mean, we we really I think there there are folks even if they're skeptical about the outcomes and North Korean behavior who are really breathing a sigh of relief considering where we were just a few months ago. Um, I think it, you know, in terms of the takeaways and the significance, you know, part of it is is the optics, and and those are pretty powerful images, right? Whether you're seeing the, the two Korean leaders engaging in, you know, a, a conversation, a you know, tree planting, cro- crossing over from from one side of the border to the other, I mean, th- this is pretty powerful stuff, and uh, I guess some of that is it was to be expected, given the rhetoric ahead of the the meeting itself. But I think there's also the the sort of, you know, when you get to the substance of it, the fact that, you know, even though there was this sort of ambitious uh, declaration that a new era of peace uh, has begun, it you know, the question is really whether this is kind of the same old story that we're, we're seeing. Um, a lot of the language, you know, in, in the declaration we've seen before, right, in, in some of these inter-Korean agreements in, in 2000, 2007. So really nothing much new in terms of substance. Um, and I think, um, as we've talked about before, while the inter-Korean meeting is, is really important, really a lot of the issues that are going to really determine the, the course of where the North Koreans are and, and these issues have yet to be resolved, right? Whether mm-hmm. it's you know what Kim Jong-un wants to do with his nuclear weapons or whether it's the, the Trump-Kim summit, which I think you know we're, we're sort of looking forward to with a mixture of kind of you know, interest, but also, um, you know, concern about, you know, how, how that is actually going to go. I mean, those are kind of the bigger questions that uh, that loom. Um, but w- what was your take about, um, you know, what we saw coming out of the meeting, but also, you know, the, the, the optics that we saw there? 
Yeah, you know, I've been I've been thinking about this a lot. So I was actually, you know, not working when the Inter-Korean summit was happening. I was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I was at a wedding, actually. So it's actually kind of nice to not be kind of mired in the first round of commentary that came out about this summit. I mean, yes, I think a lot of people, you know, were, were taken aback by the powerful images of um, Moon and Kim shaking hands uh, at the at the military demarcation line in Panmunjom. And yes, a lot of this language is familiar. Um, and I think, you know, on one level, that was to be expected. I mean, given the time that the two countries have had to plan this summit, um, they most likely, you know, it always seemed to me that they would prefer to stand on established fundamentals. A lot of the language in these summits, uh, in the declarations especially, um, were painfully politically negotiated during prior inter-Korean summits. So I think using that as a foundation, for example, you know, the language on um, the new era of peace um, and some of the other um language on inter-Korean ties more broadly, I think they're simply borrowing from established um, achievements there. Denuclearization, uh, the big D word that gets a lot of attention in Washington, appears in one um, in one section of the Panmunjom Declaration, and it's a fairly unambiguously, um, you know, weak um, commitment there from North Korea. In fact, it's not a commitment to actually disarm North Korea of its missiles, it's more a commitment, in my view at least, to global disarmament, which North Korea has long supported. And here I should point out for listeners, and this is actually, I haven't seen this really discussed in too much of the English language commentary, but North Korea actually released its own English translation of the Panmunjom Declaration. So there was an official declaration um, translated into English released, and that's the one that most websites ended up featuring, most commentators ended up citing. But North Korea, in, in Nodong Shinmun, uh, it's, uh, it's a state-run media, published its own English translation that has subtle but really important differences in translation that, to my eye at least, um, show you where the differences in interpretation are and will be when the Trump summit comes around, for example, on denuclearization. In fact, the North Korean translation, in my view, makes it a lot more um, clear that the denuclearization commitments are a far cry from the joint uh, Korean declaration and the six-party declaration in 2005, for example. That was a considerably more um, that was a considerably stronger uh, declaration on the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. So that's one thing. Um, Another thing I will say is that, um, you know, President Moon has received a little bit of criticism for, um, you know, being seen as kind of ambling into this summit with Kim Jong-un without really doing due diligence. And I think that's, you know, really a little bit unfair. I mean, yes, we know that he is a South Korean progressive. His sort of life's mission has been on one level to pursue inter-Korean rapprochement. He was chief of staff to No Mu Hyun. He saw the 2007 summit come together. He saw what went wrong. I think he's learned from that. Um, He's played it by the book when it comes to sort of sanctions relief. And I think he recognizes that going forward, if North Korea will be rewarded in any way economically, Uh, South Korea will have to work with the UN Security Council ultimately, and that's difficult. But also, um, you know, when when Moon won the presidential election last year, he didn't have an overwhelming mandate. Uh, His approval ratings were high. They took a dip in January with the cryptocurrency um, disasters in in Seoul. But I mean, after this summit, you look at the public approvals in in unofficial polling um, of both the declaration and of Moon. They're sky high. I mean, nearly 90% approval for the Panmunjom Declaration. I mean, clearly the Korean people have given 
given Moon a mandate now to see this round of inter-Korean rapprochements through. Um, and I think that's quite powerful. And that's, uh, you know, will have effects on obviously how the Trump summit proceeds, just given the um, alliance commitments and the alliance issues going on there. Um, but really, I mean, I think we are we are potentially seeing something different here. And, you know, to briefly talk about Kim Jong-un, um, which, you know, I think it needs to be said. I mean, what he's looking for here, I think, is is fairly apparent, right? He's not coming to the table to give up his nuclear weapons. Um, that's just not um, how I see things right now. Um, the declaration that came out that, you know, North Korea would um, stop nuclear testing at the Pungiri um, nuclear test site or that North Korea would cease testing its intercontinental range ballistic missiles. Those are important concessions. I, I don't think we should simply, you know, um, set those aside as an example of North Korea setting up some kind of, you know, tricky uh, way, you know, way out to kind of fool the international community again. I think if North Korea really wants to sign up to, you know, the CTBT, mm -hmm. for example, the Comprehensive uh, Test Ban Treaty, um, you know, I think we should pursue that as an option. We should see if we can convert the, the, the partial cap that they've given us here on missile testing, you know, look at converting that into a verifiable freeze of some sort. We won't get denuclearization probably, but I don't think that that's any reason to really you know, set aside other progress. So those are just a few thoughts and we can, you know, take the conversation in maybe a few ways here. Um, what do you want to mm -hmm. talk about next? I mean, I, I think, I think one thing just to, to follow up on, on what you said, because I think it's a, it's a really important point um, about what moon is trying to do and, and the mood in uh, South Korea. I mean, I, I think we do have to keep in mind with the overlay of, you know, us North Korea relations and also the involvement of other major powers that, I mean, there is a very strong sort of, you know, inner Korean story here, right, that that dates, you know, a, a painful history that dates back all the way to the Cold War. And I think you, you really do have to understand that, um, you know, there are some fundamental issues that, the, you know, the two Koreas have to work through on their own as well, right? So whether it's, you know, family reunions, um, you know, dialogue between their defense and, and, and uh, officials and diplomats. I mean, these are the kind of things that, you know, they do have to sort out. So that conversation is worth having irrespective of what we what progress we see on, you know, nuclear weapons and some of these other things that we talk about. So I do think that point that you made is is, is a really important one. The other thing that, you know, the, the Panmunjom Declaration does make very clear is that, you know, there, there is no ambiguity about the fact that this is a long sort of long-term drawn-out process. And that's to the credit of both sides, right? I mean, there is explicit mention there um, about, you know, the fact that there will have to be trilateral meetings after this, there will have to be quadrilateral meetings, you know, US, China, other countries that have to be involved in this process. So, I think you know while we look at the inter-Korean summit and the the Trump Kim summit um, as as kind of the the two sort of bilaterals that are um, you know getting a lot of attention, there is sort of this sort of continued symmetry and layering that we will see going through in the next few months, right? So, you know the trilateral summit that's coming up uh, May 9th, um, you know other sort of you know potential configurations of talks between major powers that have to come into the picture that could drag us through, you know, another few months, right? Not to mention, you know, is Moon going to have another meeting with the North Koreans? Is already committed to that? What's the shape of that? So I think we're, we're headed for kind of a, a long drawn out process here. And I think some of the, the topics that we're talking about are worth keeping in mind as we go through this continued pattern of symmetry. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's a good way for us to maybe transition to talk about one piece of that, which is 
you know, the, the Trump Kim meeting. I mean, what, you know, in your view, should we expect from that? I mean, clearly, I mean, I agree with you that, you know, <laughs> I don't think Kim Jong-un is going to enter into this thing with sort of denuclearization as, as kind of that fundamental objective. But and I think the conventional wisdom is sort of, you know, maybe we see some kind of suspension or cap on nuclear missile tests in exchange for some kind of relief or maybe, you know, the hostages uh, that the U.S. Has, has has entered into the conversation as well. I mean, how do you see what what could come out of this meeting as kind of a, a real, realizable outcome for the United States and also for North Korea? Absolutely. So, you know, I think I think the the thing that you hit on with all these summits coming up and potentially a long drawn out uh, process, I think is really important. Um, on one level, I do think part of me, you know, is at least convinced that Kim Jong-un is is trying to play for time here, um, mm -hmm. trying to potentially see the Trump administration out. And part of what leads me to believe that is that North Korea is not negotiating like its old self. Um, you know, some of the assurances that the South Koreans have, for example, brought up, you know, that Kim Jong-un isn't asking for the full withdrawal of U.S. troops. I mean, yes, you know, Kim Dae-chung was told that by Kim Jong-il. Um, that isn't an entirely new position, but given the height to which tensions have come and given North Korea's capabilities, to be honest, which are far more credible today than they ever were under Kim Jong-il, um, that's a little bit odd to me. Uh, so, you know, I mean, a part of me thinks that Kim Jong-un is interested in entering into a summit with Trump and agreeing to some kind of, you know, self-enforced moratorium. I think the dismantling of the nuclear test site, um, that's potentially an interesting space for North Korea to kind of portray itself as a responsible nuclear power, which I think mm -hmm. rhetorically is a lot of what we've been seeing from Kim Jong-un. Um, he's, you know, been talking, uh, you know, he reemphasized North Korea's sort of declaratory nuclear policy, giving out, you know, negative security assurances that North Korea would never use nuclear weapons against a non-nuclear country unless it joined in a nuclear attack with, uh, you know, the United States, for example. Um, so there's a lot of that going on. When it comes to the summit with Trump, uh, so here's the important thing, right? I mean, we first of all don't have any precedent for a meeting like this. This is the first time a sitting U.S. president will be meeting a North Korean leader. We do have an idea of what U.S.-North Korea diplomacy has looked like in the past. Um, to my mind, the summit with Trump is a good example of doing diplomacy with North Korea backwards and fundamentally, you know, giving up a lot of leverage. I, I, you know, I see the summit with a U.S. president as a prize for a North Korean leader. Um, North Korean leaders have long sought to be seen side by side with a U.S. president, you know, potentially even opening the door to arms control talks. I mean, is Trump ready for Kim Jong-un to ask him about, you know, U.S. ICBM reductions and working towards global nuclear disarmament? Um, that's not, you know, in the realm of... Um, crazy talk right now. I mean, frankly, North Korean propaganda has always kind of hinted at this idea that the United States, um, not only, you know, what North Korea calls the hostile policy, the collection of um, U.S. kind of perceived nuclear threats against North Korea, but, you know, North Korea does regularly call for global nuclear disarmament. And I think on one level, Kim Jong-un might be looking to enter, you know, into some kind of arms control arrangement with the United States. When it comes to security assurances, too, I mean, it's it's quite interesting. I mean, uh, just, uh, just today, um, uh, May 3rd, the New York Times reported that Trump has already ordered the Pentagon to start studying ways in which the United States can reduce 
its true presence in South Korea. And the article specifically notes, you know, citing an anonymous source at the Pentagon, that this isn't being used as um, a bargaining chip in the in the inter-Korean um, in the North Korean diplomatic uh, negotiations that are coming up. And that to me is also crazy. Uh, yeah. I don't know if the North Koreans have uh, appreciated the extent to which Trump is a fundamentally different U.S. president when it comes to thinking about U.S. alliances. I mean, yeah. this on one level is an opportunity unlike anything the North Koreans have ever had. Um, a, a U.S. president who is fundamentally skeptical of the value of alliances and a, a U.S. president with a long record of specifically complaining about the alliance with South Korea. If, if Kim Jong-un asks Trump for concessions on the U.S. force posture on the Korean Peninsula, it's easy for me to imagine Trump seeing that as a no-brainer concession, right? I mean, it's something that he wants to do anyways. And if Kim's willing to, you know, say, give up some ICBMs or potentially submit to additional verification of some sort in exchange for a reduction in the U.S. troop presence, I think that's an easy, easy take for Trump. So I think, you know, we we should really be open to this idea that U.S. alliances in Northeast Asia um, and specifically the U.S.-South Korea alliance might look very different by 2020. And that process could begin in June 2018 when when Trump meets Kim. The other variable here is, of course, um, you know, Trump is not the Trump administration. We have John Bolton. We have Mike Pompeo. Both of them have recently made some pretty high expectations comments about what they're hoping to see out of this summit, you know, and effectively it comes down to the complete verifiable and irreversible denuclearization of North Korea, that old standard the United States has stuck to, the, the standard that's frankly so unrealistic right now that it's, um, you know, we're probably not getting close to that standard um, in any denuclearization talks. And look, a lot of people have already noted that, you know, Bolton has incentives to support this because he, you know, might love to see diplomacy fail, which leaves... The only other option on the table for the United States was regime change. Uh, but even that presents a decoupling dilemma for the U.S.-South Korea alliance. Mm -hmm. So I'm still I'm still pretty uneasy about this Trump-Kim summit. I mean, yes, I will say that if Trump recovers the remaining three U.S. hostages who are in North uh, Korea, which I think is a high probability outcome of this summit, that's obviously very good news. Uh, you can't hold that against him. And obviously, I think, you know, for a U.S. president like Trump, who's besieged uh, domestically with a midterm election coming up for his party, that will certainly be a welcome concession. So in my mind, the way I'm kind of framing the Trump summit right now, and I, I said this on Twitter, is that, you know, on one level, what Kim Jong-un is getting is he's getting a summit with a U.S. president, a huge propaganda coup, something that North Korean leaders have long sought. Trump is getting to being seen as, you know, the leader that rescued all remaining American hostages in North Korea before a midterm election, everything else effectively, including the status of North Korea's nuclear program, is secondary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think I, I, I kind of agree with that. And I think it, it's important to kind of go back to the, the point you raised earlier, which is um, to be open to the possibility that, you know, there on the one hand, there's this sort of catastrophic scenario that, that folks are talking about where, you know, talks fail and maybe... The, the meeting doesn't happen or Trump walks away and, you know, we, we sort of escalate into war with, with uh, John Bolton and other hawks kind of, you know, in the ascendancy. The, the other uh, sort of take on this is that, you know, perhaps uh, both the U.S. and North Korea, you know, just meet and declare victory for different reasons, right? So the North Koreans, you know, sort of going off the lines you said, which is, you know, Kim Jong-un just concludes that it's better to sort of 
you know, declare victory quickly after the summit and, you know, getting the legitimacy from this and kind of agree to some vague declaration of denuclearization in terms of what the North Koreans define as denuclearization and enough for the U.S. to kind of save face. And Trump, you know, getting uh, some concessions, whether it's on the hostages or maybe some other vague declaration, comes home and says, hey, you know, I, I've gotten these things that, you know, previous U.S. presidents haven't gotten, which he's already sort of saying on Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and both, uh, you know, both leaders go home and sort of declare victory. And maybe that's kind of the last thing that we actually hear of, of the situation without actually addressing the fundamental issues that, you know, you and I have been talking about that, that need to be addressed, right? Which is, you know, how do you deal with uh, this, this, this nuclear state? You know, is it uh, containable in the same way that it was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And I think, you know, the, the conception of living with a nuclear North Korea, I think it's something that, you know, we've talked about in general, but I think the specifics there, as we've discussed before, um, they're very serious. And I think, you know, they demand careful consideration beyond the sort of, you know, maybe midterm election victory that Trump declares on, on, on North Korea. And so I, I do think that, there, there is a possibility here that we actually get to the summit, you know, after all this sort of hyperventilating and, and worrying, and we sort of end up, you know, kind of where we started, which is, <laughs> you know, no real resolution of the substantive issue. And I, I don't know. I mean, I think for some folks, they might say that's a bad thing. But I think others may say that's actually a good thing, considering where we started, which is right. uh, being close to escalation and potential war. So, yeah, no, I mean, on a fundamental level, I, I actually, you know, I agree with that. I mean, my kind of I guess philosophical outlook to the Korean Peninsula is sort of that the United States is doomed to muddle through. Mm-hmm. Um, to succeed on the Korean Peninsula, um, you know, I think a de- you know, denuclearization at this point, the way it's been imagined, is no longer a realistic objective. So, you know, I think there is still a successful scenario for the United States that involves a a serious kind of verified hard cap on North Korea's missiles and warheads, something like what Siegfried Hecker has outlined with his three no's, that North mm-hmm. Korea doesn't deliver, um, you know, develop more warheads, better warheads, or proliferate nuclear weapons. I don't think we're going to get anything like that. I think ultimately these countries are doomed to sort of muddle through. That was kind of what I held on to last year while everybody was so concerned that a war would break out. Um, you know, I think the reality on the Korean Peninsula will probably always fall between a devastating nuclear war and complete peace and complete verifiable and irreversible denuclearization. So I think Mm -hmm. after the Trump summit, um, yeah, it's, it's very easy for me to imagine, you know, Trump kind of patting himself on the back. And especially if the two Koreas, you know, do move forward and uh, the armistice is converted into a peace treaty and a peace regime. And even, you know, U.S. troops do stay behind. I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that the United States would have to withdraw from the peninsula in the aftermath of a peace treaty. I mean, yes, it would be domestically tricky for South Korea to justify the presence of U.S. troops, but it's not something that, you know, has to absolutely happen. But I do think, you know, fundamentally what I really worried about is uh, the uh, the status of the United States alliance there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about in the Padmunjom Declaration is the, you know, uh, later on in the text, there's a uh, commitment for both sides to convene um, a trilateral meeting with the United States. Or, and this is interesting because it's an or, not an and, or, or an and, or a quadrilateral meeting with uh, North Korea, South Korea, um, the United States, and China. 
Um, so that's, again, um, a process that we may see play out soon. You know, Xi Jinping is supposed to visit Pyongyang. Um, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi was just there this week. Um, so China is clearly not going to let itself be sidelined here. And China certainly will have a role to play in the conversion of the armistice into a peace treaty as one of the signatories of the original armistice. South Korea never signed the armistice, so it's it's signed between the Korean People's Army, the Chinese, and the United States under the uh, United Nations command. So that's something to, again, watch for, you know, how that plays out. One more thing I want to say before we wrap up the discussion is, uh, you know, Kim Jong-un's economic agenda. Um, at his New Year's Day address this year, uh, you know, despite talking about how proud he was of the completed nuclear deterrent, uh, he did talk about how sanctions have hurt North Korea. And in his recent address to the Central Committee of the Workers um, Party, he was talking about, uh, you know, how the Korean people will no longer have to tighten their belts. Um, so he is, you know, still committed to the second half of what North Korea calls the Pyongjin line, the idea that the country can have a powerful nuclear deterrent and nuclear power, but also have economic prosperity on the side. And, you know, that I think is an interesting point of leverage. I mean, how does that convert into sort of concessions from South Korea, concessions from the international community, the United Nations? That question um, is is no closer to being answered. And I think that's something that I'm going to be watching with quite a bit of interest um, as, as this, you know, long drawn out process progresses. Yeah, and I think uh, that long-term uh, perspective is useful to keep in mind uh, apart from the nuclear issue, right? So this is, if you think about this as regime survival, there's a international component, but there's also a domestic component about what Kim Jong-un is going to do um, at home to keep the North Korean economy and North Korean society sort of um, keeping up with that in order to keep the regime um, afloat. And I, I think that's a very big variable that we don't really have a sort of clear sense of where he's heading so and i think the 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 sort of regime survival point is important because as you um noted correctly um kim jong-un is going to be there well after donald trump uh, leaves office unless you know presumably unless something major happens that we don't know about um and i think this, that long-term perspective and time horizon is really important to keep in mind as we think through this this issue because I think Kim Jong-un may actually have a sort of longer perspective and, and room to maneuver when he looks at this issue relative to what Donald Trump is looking at. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Prashant, I think we'll be coming back to this topic in a few weeks when the uh, U.S.-North Korea summit happens, as I think yeah. it will. Um, but thanks for joining me today. Yeah, good to be with you. Absolutely. For our listeners, if you like what you heard, I hope you'll subscribe. And if you're a subscriber but you haven't left us a review yet on iTunes, please do so. It really helps get the word out about the show. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.